You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Chand Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 1, verses 7 through 11, for the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. The theme of John's preaching was, One more powerful than I is to come after me. I am not fit to stoop and untie his sandal straps. I have baptized you in water. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. During that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. Immediately on coming up out of the water, he saw the sky rent in two and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Then a voice came from the heavens, You are my beloved Son, on you my favor rests. Our Gospel opens with exactly the same words which ended that of the second Sunday of Advent, the theme of John's preaching. The one who was to follow him was more powerful. John must have been well aware of his own power. He had only to look at the crowds. Writes Luke, the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him. And Mark, all Judea and all the people of Jerusalem made their way to him. John didn't turn them away, for he had a job to do. He had proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in all the region about the Jordan. And so we read, as they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, they confessed their sins. But as time went on and John's reputation grew, there was speculation. Luke fills in the picture. A feeling of expectation had grown among the people who were beginning to think that John might be the Christ. So John declared before them all, I baptize with water, but someone is coming, someone who is more powerful than I, and I am not fit to undo the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In the Gospel of John the Evangelist, which we read on the third Sunday of Advent, it was in answer to those sent by the Pharisees that John made this declaration. They too wanted to know who he was. And if he wasn't the Messiah, or Elijah, or the prophet, why was he baptizing? What right had he? John doesn't give the deputation a direct answer. Only to his own followers does he later on say, after he has baptized Jesus, For this I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And lest there should be any doubt in their minds, he declares. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. One can only imagine the amazement with which this announcement must have been received. John has just pointed out Jesus, who's coming in their direction, and he calls him the Lamb of God. It's hardly surprising, then, that when Jesus passes near them the very next day, and John again says, Behold the Lamb of God, that two of his disciples, 
Andrew, and probably John the Evangelist, who recounts it, should immediately follow the new prophet, leaving their former master, John, behind. For John, it must have been a moment of extreme emotions, joy at the success at his preaching, sadness at losing his disciples, his friends. He must increase, I must decrease, he perhaps repeated this time to himself. And let's look now at the place where all this happened, on the banks of the River Jordan, the Holy River par excellence. Famous in Bible history, flowing south from anti-Lebanon along a sinuous course, mostly below sea level to the Dead Sea, its rapidity and variant depth render it unnavigable, and no town of any importance has ever been built on its banks. Thus the Gazetteer. But not so very far away from the river to its west, there's a town which has been estimated as possibly the oldest in the world. And in the book of Joshua, we can read of the famous battle when the walls came tumbling down. But before taking Jericho, Joshua and the Israelites, priests with the Ark of the Covenant, 40,000 armed men and all the people had to cross the Jordan. There were no bridges and no boats. And what's more, it was harvest time, when the snows of Mount Hermon melt and the Jordan overflows the whole length of its banks. But, as usual, God was with them. David Kossoff retells the story of the crossing of the Jordan in simple contemporary language. God staged managed it beautifully. He put the priests and one man from each of the twelve tribes and the holy ark of the law down by the side of the great river Jordan in full flood. Well away from them, on rising ground, where they could see everything, the people. Between, Joshua. Instructed by God, he raised his staff, Moses' staff, and the priests and men carrying the holy ark moved down to the water's edge. As their feet touched the water, the water retreated, and as the Red Sea forty years before had divided for Moses, so the Jordan halted and piled up in a great glistening wall for Joshua. The priests and their precious burden stopped halfway across, and the people passed over in front of them, singing, praying. Then the priests followed, and when the last man was on dry land, the water came down with a roar like thunder. Today there's a bridge over the Jordan opposite Jericho, where the children of Israel cross the river, and somewhere on the west bank is the site of Gilgal, the first place where the people camped after the crossing. Gilgal is Hebrew for circle. For God told Joshua to take twelve stones from the Jordan, one for each of the tribes of Israel, and set them up as a reminder for future generations of the miracle of the crossing and of the mighty hand of God. It's thought that the name Gilgal meant that the stones were placed in a circle, but today no one knows where the memorial lies. Throughout the centuries, and in both pagan and Christian literature, crossing the river has always been a powerful image for the moment of death, when the soul has to cross from this life to the next. And in his allegorical novel, The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan used this image to great effect. Here is how two of his characters react to the summons to be ready to present themselves before the Lord at his father's house. The first is Mr. Valiant for Truth. 
When he understood it, he called for his friends and told them of it. Then said he, I am going to my father's, and though with great difficulty I have got hither, yet now I do not repent me of all the troubles I have been to arrive where I am. My sword I give to him that shall succeed me in my pilgrimage, and my courage and skill to him that can get it. My marks and scars I carry with me, to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles, who now will be my rewarder. When the day that he must go hence was come, many accompanied him to the riverside, into which, as he went, he said, Death, where is thy sting? And as he went down deeper, he said, Grave, where is thy victory? So he passed over, and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. Mr. Standfast's going came about this way. The time being come for him to haste him away, he also went down to the river. Now there was a great calm at that time in the river. Wherefore Mr. Standfast, when he was about halfway in, stood a while and talked to his companions that had waited upon him thither. And he said, This river has been a terror to many, yea, the thoughts of it also have often frightened me. But now, methinks, I stand easy. My foot is fixed upon that on which the feet of the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant stood, while Israel went over this Jordan. And now for some light relief, an anecdote told to H. V. Morton by Abdul the Boatman as they were walking near the mouth of the Jordan. The traveller recounts. We walked beside fields of growing corn and leapt over gullies and irrigation trenches. Turning a corner suddenly, we disturbed a large water buffalo who was having a splendid time in the Jordan. He snorted and stampeded away, sending a shower of mud over us. When God was making the cow, said Abdul, the horned one passed by. The Arabs, who have a superstitious dread of calling unpleasant things by their right name, refer to the devil as the horned one. The horned one passed by, he continued, and when he saw the cow that God was making, he laughed loud and for a long time. He said he'd never seen such a funny-looking animal. So God told him to make a better one himself. So the devil made the water buffalo. For Christians, one of the holiest places in the land we call holy is a two-mile stretch on the western shore of the Jordan to the east of Jericho. Here, close to a ford which pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem were obliged to cross, is the traditional site of our Lord's baptism. The stretch, the guidebook informs us, is divided into five separate sites, each revered by a different Christian denomination. Traveller H. V. Morton puts things into perspective for us. No one knows where the place of the baptism was, neither do we know where Bethany beyond Jordan was, but the place I discovered among the tamarisk and the willows is that which has been hallowed by centuries of pious pilgrimage. In the old days before the war, when Russia was holy Russia, thousands of pilgrims used to come down to this place to plunge into the Jordan, wearing white gowns which they took home to keep as their shrouds. 
The guidebook confirms that the place of the baptism was particularly revered by Russian pilgrims until the revolution. Sometimes they even came on foot, carrying their shrouds. Upon approaching the Jordan River, they put on their shrouds and baptized themselves in the water in the belief that this act would ensure their resurrection. Bottled Jordan River water drawn in the place of the baptism was a very common souvenir taken home by the pilgrims as it was thought to have curative powers. And H. V. Morton adds this detail. The custom of bathing at this spot, or somewhere near it, goes back to the most remote times. It was known to the pilgrim of Bordeaux, who visited the Holy Land in the Roman era, about the year 333 AD. And one evening in the year 1172, Theodoric saw 60,000 persons plunge into the river at this spot. A vision of the Ganges somehow rises up before me. And our traveller ends his account with a personal reflection. The Jordan surprised me. I felt that I was standing on the bank of some English stream, perhaps the Avon in Warwickshire, high up upon beyond the mill in flood time. I can't say why I should have felt this, because the banks of the Jordan are thick with exotic foreign trees and shrubs, such as tamarisk and a thin reed like bamboo. I think it was the way a group of willows dropped their leaves in the water, exactly as they do when the Avon floods the meadows round Stratford-on-Avon in March. There's something slow and gentle and small about the Jordan, as it swings round the bend beside the place of the baptism. Something, as I say, very home-like. It seemed to me that there should be a lesson in this, that a man should travel across the world to see the holy Jordan and discover it to be just like the little stream at home that runs at the bottom of his garden. I thought how true this vision of mine was, for the Jordan does flow in every part of the Christian world. Some little drop finds its way into every font at every baptism. In their Theology of Salvation, the Fathers of the Church gave great importance to the baptism of Christ. The event was seen to be significant, firstly, because of the revelation by the voice from heaven that Jesus is Son of the Father. Secondly, because the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. This descent the Fathers saw as the real anointing and appointment of Jesus to his messianic office before the start of his public life. Furthermore, they believed that by receiving the baptism of John, Jesus was professing his solidarity with the guilty human race and giving water the power to forgive sins. Today's feast, which brings the Christmas cycle to a close, has also been called a second epiphany. The first was to the Magi. The third took place at Cana in Galilee, when Jesus performed his first miracle. Originally, all three events were celebrated together on the Feast of Epiphany. And in its preface for the Epiphany, the Ambrosian liturgy celebrates the moment when Jesus comes up out of the water, and immediately, as our Gospel has it, he saw the sky rent in two and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Then a voice came from the heavens, You are my beloved Son, on you my favour rests. Let's hear, then, how those early Christian assemblies interpreted that solemn moment. Father, on the banks of the Jordan your voice resounded in the roll of thunder coming from heaven, making manifest the Saviour, showing yourself as Father of eternal light. You have rent the heavens, blessed the air, 
purified the water, made manifest your only Son through the Holy Spirit, appearing in the form of a dove. Today the fountains, having received your blessing, cast off the ancient curse, and so the faithful, purified from their sins, are presented to God for eternal life, as sons by adoption. In fact, those who through birth in the flesh were destined for the life of time, those whom death had seized through the complicity of sin, are welcomed into eternal life and brought back to the glory of heaven.